Grace. Oh, we are recording now. Yes, yes, yes. So thank <laughs> yes. you so much. Thank welcome, you so much. Welcome. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, sometimes, okay, maybe we have to fix the, the your audio because now come, come a little closer. Okay, okay. Yeah, there. Cause yes, uh, and you can hear me? Yeah. Because earlier there was like a, you know, you were talking and then it was stopping. So I think that might be the good distance. Okay. Right? okay. I'll make sure well, I'll stay this far away from my, from my microphone. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, I welcome everyone. This is Quantum Nurse and I am Grace Asagra. Today's guest is Mr. Carter Patterson. Welcome, Carter. <laughs> and welcome audience and welcome listeners. So I'm really happy that Carter had time be to spend this episode with us because, you know, he's a busy man, a, a father, a leader, and let me read more about him. Mm -hmm. Carter, you are a proud dad and a visionary project director with more than 25 years of social service and nonprofit management experience. Mm -hmm. You are a strategic thinker utilizing a person-centered, impact-driven approach to planning and implementing corporate, private, state and federally funded programs. Mm -hmm. Carter, you also utilize strategic partnerships to increase community involvement, emphasizing the interdependent nature of relationships mm -hmm. to achieve program success. Your gentle teaching methods are focused on building personal trust to provide a foundation for learning and growth. Your goal in life's work is to create programming that positively impacts the lives of others. Mm -hmm. Carter, you also currently manage more than $1 million in federal, state, and private funding. Yes. As a frequent lead presenter, you speak on creating foundation moments to support the early bond between father and child. Mm -hmm. Your lectures cover multiple topics related to fatherhood, including intentional fathering, mm -hmm. trauma-informed practice for fathers and families, increasing employment opportunities for men, Mm -hmm. and effective co-parenting. Mm -hmm. You also presented on both local and national scene, receiving invitations from top educational institutions, such as Princeton University mm -hmm. and the College of New Jersey, as well as nationally recognized fatherhood conferences, like the Fathers and Families Coalition Conference of Greater Los Angeles mm -hmm. and the American Public Human Services Association Conference of Baltimore, mm -hmm. Maryland. You have received numerous awards from the state of New Jersey and city of Trenton 
for this work around nonprofit economic development. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's just 26 yeah. years worth, worth of work that helps people. That's yes. the best way that I can define it. It helps people. Like I've been helping people for a very, very long time. Well, you mentioned earlier that I have known you and we have known each other for many decades already. Mm -hmm. since you were mm -hmm. just 19 years old mm -hmm. and from I met you when you were working at the health food store mm -hmm. and you were also assisting um, families in with, with children mm -hmm. I, 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 if I remember it correctly and that's mm -hmm. just two of the fabulous things that you were doing as a young man mm -hmm. how, how do you with all this that mm -hmm. I now know about your achievements mm -hmm. and your commitment. How did you transform yourself? Hmm. Especially coming from a mixed race background. Yes, yes. Okay, so tell, tell us about it. And also, correct me again if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that also being raised with your mom and and having an absentee father. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, I mean, that, that is a lot um, to unpack. But um, I think that I was called to this, the kind of work that I do um, at a very young age. I remember being at the grocery store with my mother and we were, we were picking up some groceries and I remember looking at, there was a little, there was a child in the grocery cart that was in front of us, right? And I remember making faces at the child, right? And my mom said, oh, you're always messing with the kids. And then it was almost at that point, at 15 years old, at the grocery store with my mother, I realized that all, when I always played with the little kids and I've always had this affinity and attraction to always like with my little cousins and nieces and nephews. And I said to myself, wow, I really get something very deep in my soul around when I help people. And um, I think I knew then at 15 years old um, that my life was going to be in service um, to other people. Um, and so I started off working at a summer camp um, and working at a summer camp um, as a junior counselor and then eventually, you know, moved from a summer camp to a pre-kindergarten teacher, right? And I started to you know, say to myself, wow, this thing with helping other people is very, very satisfying. I always, always feel like I get paid twice. So, you know, obviously there's the financial um, compensation that they give to you for helping someone. But then there's this very deep and satisfying thing that kind of comes from within. And it's almost like seeing the face of God every time um, you're able to help uh, someone. Um, that is such a deep sense of satisfaction for me that I continue to do it. Um, and so when you talk about transformation, Grace, um, a transformation from um, a young man working um, at, at, the, at the health food store and still doing some things um, in the community, like it took me being a father um, and being responsible for another soul 
that's when I began my journey on this real transformation of becoming um, a loving adult. Because um, growing up without my father, with just me, my mom, and my sister, it was very difficult. Um, it was difficult on a lot of different levels. It was difficult because, you know, we lived in a very poor environment in, around predominantly um, Black people. But then every year for two weeks, we would go to vacation with my great-grandmother in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And we would sell like, you know, antiques out of a big red barn, right? And like, who would have known that this little child, that this child from this federally subsidized building in Trenton is now selling antiques out of a big red barn in the mountains of Pennsylvania and how to understand how to go and travel between those two worlds has been one of the skills that I've, cre that I've developed um, through life. Um, it has helped me see people for who they are. Um, that I like to see, I like to think that I see people for their thoughts and their words and their deeds and their actions, as opposed to what they look like on the outside. A lot of times when people ask me um, about my background, a lot of times, especially as I've gotten older, people think that I'm Spanish, right? And then I say, no, well, my mother's white and my father is black. And, you know, so with it, you know, there's always a bunch of questions that kind of go along with that. And then they, they often ask me about my mother. And when I talk about my mom, the only thing that I see is my mother, right? I don't necessarily see a 68-year-old 60, a white woman, of which she is, right? I just see my mom. Um, and I see the love and the care that she's had for me. Um, I guess one of the things that, that also kind of comes to mind in my transformation in my journey is, yes, I did not know my father. Um, I never knew my father. And, you know, to, and to be very honest, um, the gentleman whom my mother shared with me that was my father, he died in 2005. So I never would have had a chance to connect with him or know him or do anything. And so as, um, as a young man, I guess when, when we met Grace when I was um, 19, I think that was, I had a son um, that died. June 1st, 1994, his name was Joshua and the umbilical cord got caught around his neck and he died while he was being born. Um, it was very, very hurtful. Um, it was hurtful for a long time, but it's interesting, like after we went through the ceremony and the ritual of putting him to rest, I was ready to be a dad. And so, of course, you know, I had a baby. Um, we had a baby and my first son, Afari um, came into the world and it was then that I started to understand that, you know, living for other people and living for your family was the most, one of the, the most important and noble things that you can do and be in this world is to be a parent. Um, but let me not say that I realized that at 19. Like I'm just realizing that now and I'll be 47 this year. And through all of my studies and through all of my travels and the people that I've touched and helped, um, that the one thing that I've kind of circled back to is the love of family. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have, that when it's all said and done, the only thing that makes any of this worth it is the love and the respect of your family. Um, and I really kind of 
I mean, I started to realize that when I was 19, um, but because I was a, such a young father, and then I evolved as a person and as a man, and then eventually as a father, I slowly started to understand like, wow, family is the most important thing and the love and the respect of the people that, that, that you care about the most. That's the most important thing. And I think that's what kind of helped me on my journey um, is having children and being responsible for another um, human being because I did not want to repeat the curse of my father and because my mom didn't know her father. So it was almost like there was a generational curse that was broken because I had such a deep-seated want and desire to make sure that, the, that these children that I brought into this world did not have to go through the same kind of pain and loss that I had to go through and had to endure as a young adult. So I think to answer your question, Grace, um, growing up um, biracial um, with an absentee father, the thing that helped me out the most was having my first child and then being an active, present, and consistent, healthy presence in, in my child's life. You know, and then eventually I have four children, right? I have two boys and two girls, you know? So um, I, guess I, I guess I liked it. <laughs> I guess I like um, being a parent. And, um, you know, my children are wonderful. Um, they're all happy and healthy. And there's some other things that I would like to share about my oldest son um, when we get deeper into the conversation. But I think um, that's what helped me the most, understanding um, that, um, that loving your family was the most important thing and that um, as a young man, um, making sure that I did not mistake or repeat the, the, the sins of my father. Thank so, you. I answered the question. Yeah. Thank you, Musai. And that's the name I fondly call you. So yes. until now, I call you as Musai. And of course, every now and then I'll call you Carter. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, thank you for sharing that. And that's really deep. And so that brings me to the question of, was it an active choice of yours to do a different path from your current environment, mm -hmm. your current status that you cannot change, that you are biracial? Mm -hmm. Yes, so it was definitely an active choice. And let me share with you a story about the reason why it kind of resonates so deep with me. My mom, um, who, and I don't want to be emotional, but you know, that's what, that's what happens when you're telling these um, emotionally charged stories. I wanted to try out for the baseball team, right? And uh, so my mom went to, hold on, she went to Woolworth and bought a very simple baseball glove. And I said, okay, we're gonna go. And I'm going to go, and I'm gonna go by myself to the baseball tryouts. So I went there and I stood across the street and I watched uh, the other children play with their parents. And I looked at my, my glove and I looked across the street and I said, no, I'm not going over there because I don't have anybody. So turned around and I went home. And then I said to myself, 
I don't want my child or anyone that's connected to me to feel that kind of pain of loss, of not having anyone there to support you in something that you wanted to do. So I think um, at that point, um, at age nine, standing across the street watching the other children with their parents try out for baseball, I decided that I didn't want to inflict that kind of pain on somebody that was connected to me. And that's why, that's why. Yeah. Yeah, so every time I tell that story, um, I get choked up because it comes from, um, it comes from a real place. It comes from a place of pain and it comes from a place of not wanting to repeat the, that same kind of father wound um, that I had um, growing up as a child and making sure that my children had the very best version of me um, possible. And so, yes, it was a conscious choice that I made at a very young age to not give this pain and my trauma to my children. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my story. Yeah. Part of it. Yeah. Um, and thanks again for sharing that story. I know um, yeah, I can, I feel you. All right. And my heart goes with you. Uh, and that's the kind of sensitivity I've known you from the very beginning. You mm -hmm. know, and we connected heart to heart, energy to energy. And mm -hmm. so, and even then, <laughs> believe it or not, I know that you're going to be so successful because I see that passion in you way before. And I know there were all ads happening. And that's why um, I like you to be here and speak up and, and share your story. Yes. And, uh, you know, because it is a perfect timing to hear about parenting and all other issues happening about parenting. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, you can please continue and to give, like my question maybe perhaps would be, if there is a 19-year-old young man uh -huh. listening to us right now, what would you tell that young man who might be having similar situation when mm -hmm. you were 19? Wow. Um, I would say that um, to that 19-year-old uh, young man, to first accept um, everything that is happening um, with um, the relationship uh, with um, your significant other and your person. And, and a lot of times I've, I've found that, especially with young people, um, if they are starting a family together, that it, was, it wasn't something that was planned. Um, but to know that that person that you've created, that, 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 that soul that is growing with inside um, the, of your partner, that that's something that both of you created um, and that the 19-year-old male needs to be just as prepared to be a parent as the mom is. Too many times um, we, um, as a society, we prepare young ladies and women to be moms. We do not do the same thing for young men. Young men need to understand that sensitivity, 
being vulnerable, being consistent, being healthy, being drug free is a part of being a good parent. Um, so at that 19 year old man who is having a new child or is thinking of having um, a baby that you need to understand that being a father and being a parent is something that it's not something that comes natural. It's something that you have to work at. You have to work at bonding with your child. Um, and more specifically, especially um, as a baby, like with moms, you know, the baby grows inside of the mother's body. And so there's a connection there that, the, you know, it eats with the, the mommy and, and the baby, they're eating the same and they're sharing, you know, this kind of connection, both the psychic, spiritual and the actual physical connection through the umbilical cord and all of this stuff goes through the placenta and it feeds the baby. But just know that dad, the baby also responds to you too. The baby responds to the sound of your voice especially if it's elevated and irritated the baby responds to that inside of the womb so be careful with your words and your voice um and also understand when that baby gets here that there's no magic right there's no magic that happens that you're you're instantly bonded with the baby no no young man you have got to reach out pick up your child and specifically you know skin to skin contact Take off your shirt and have the baby be next to you, skin-to-skin -skin contact so that you can bond with that baby. That is so, so super important because you need to develop those kinds of emotional attachments because that is your flesh and blood. That is something that you guys created. Nobody has the upper hand. You guys should be absolutely co-parents in it together. So if anything, um, what I would tell the 19-year-old the young man is to be soft in your voice, right? Be supportive um, to that person who eventually will have your baby. And then when the baby gets here, be intentional and active in bonding with your child. And the best thing that I can say is skin-to-skin. Skin-to-skin -skin contact with your new baby is the best thing. So that's what I would share with um, a 19 year old who is looking at um, having um, a baby for the first time. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So how about you? What was the best advice that you have received? Hmm. The best advice that, that I have received is that you can always, whenever, you, you can be in a situation, um, you can be in a situation with other people that you very, very, that you care about, but there is power in saying no, right? And so sometimes, you know, when you are a nice person and you want to be able to connect and bond with people, like, and you want to say yes to everybody, yes, 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 but in your saying yes, you're your credibility is starting to get watered down because you cannot possibly, you know, be all things to all people. And so the best advice that, that I've ever heard, because I am a people pleaser and I want people to be happy and I want to make people happy, is the incredible power of saying no. Um, and no with, with respect and with boundaries. Um, not no in a malicious or, or no, but just no, I won't be able to help because, you know, me saying no is understanding and setting a healthy boundary for both you and I, 
you know? Because if I constantly try to appease everyone, then no one is happy, and then my personal credibility um, is, is jeopardized and, and compromised. So the power of saying no is one of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten. I'm glad you didn't say no to me. The universe told you, say yes. Yes, yes, yes to this Okay. What do you know about uh, um, trauma um, parenting or tra trauma care parenting? Right. Okay. Trauma informed care. Tell me so, about it. So, trauma. Wow. So, it is it's the it is the it is how i approach the work that i do um i work um with men um through the father center i'm the director um of the program of course and then i have staff people whom i work with and we work together to help the men um and so trauma trauma is not what's wrong with you right it's what happened to you Right. And so many times I think in social service agencies and with in regular just in, in social service agencies and he's just even in stores and doctor's offices that the medical model is I'm going to treat what's wrong with you. Right. Um, but really what happens and, and a lot of times when I when I talk with people who are struggling with addiction, um, with to alcoholism and or drugs, that there is a deeper seated problem that triggers that want to escape to in using drugs. And 99% of the time, it is because of some sort of trauma um, that has happened in that person's life. And trauma can be a big thing, right? Um, like being sexually or verbally or emotionally abused by your parents or the people that you love. Or trauma can be, be a little thing like spilling coffee on yourself, right? So it's like big T and little t. But trauma and the bad things that happen to us shape our personalities and it shapes our experiences and it shapes our perspective. Sometimes so much so when we talk about um, generational trauma, um, just as, and I can use me as an example, like my mom didn't know her father. My, from what I understand, my father didn't know his father, right? So there is this trauma that my mom, like, so she never connected with her dad, right? So when I started to ask questions about who my father was. She didn't really, didn't really have a really vested interest in sharing with me all of the details because it really didn't matter to her because she was traumatized by not being connected with her father. So it's almost like she gave her trauma to me, but I stopped it, right? I stopped it because I had this incredible sense of like, no, I don't want this bad thing to happen to me. But what happens also with a lot of people it's almost like, like Humpty Dumpty, Grace, right? So Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great big fall. So when Humpty Dumpty fell, they had all of these jagged little pieces. And that's what happens with trauma, right? So you can be going along in life and, you know, you can have this really happy existence, you know, mom, dad, and then, then boom, something really bad happens to interrupt that continuum. It shatters 
your experience and it shatters the natural, normal, healthy brain development, right? And then once that, once that shattering happens, if there's no healing that kind of goes after that, so then when you start to pick up the jagged pieces, they cut you, they cut you, they cut you. And then sometimes with that trauma, you take it with you because it becomes unhealed and then it becomes a wound. And that's why we have a whole lot of, you know, I'm sure you've heard this saying before, Grace, as a nurse, um, that hurt people hurt people, right? Um, and then it, because if I was traumatized and not loved, um, that if I don't get the help and the healing that I need, I'm going to give that trauma to the other people that I love, right? And so it is so very important for me and in the work that I do um, that I recognize the, the, the people's trauma history and be able to acknowledge that and give awareness to it and then give them the opportunity to give some language to it because maybe they might not be in contact with their feelings. They may not understand that they've had this big T trauma in their life and that's the reason why they're having so many issues in their relationships with their children and loved ones because there was no healing, right? And so I think that um, with trauma um, and with the work that I do, again, I recognize the trauma history of my guys, but then we actively work to try to want to try to help them to seek help for it. Um, we help them to connect with it so we can put language to it. Um, and that, um, that, they, that, they, uh, that they understand that trauma, when it happens to you, um, and this is just my belief and it's just something um, that I've worked with, like it never goes away, right? You need to learn how to sit with it because if something really negative has happened to you, that experience is going to be with you, but you do not have to let it poison your existence, your relationships, and then how you interact with other people. The only way that that trauma um, can be um, effectively dealt with is if it was healed. And healing, you know, it's, it looks different for a lot of different people. Um, one of the things that I would also like to say about trauma-informed care, like, yes, this is my philosophical approach, how I approach dealing with the men we provide support for, but it is very important that that same idea that I have about understanding the guys and that my clients' trauma history, the people that I work with, too, are so very, very important. So how can I treat the clients and the people that we work with like gold, but my coworker, I steal their stapler off their desk, or the coworker, I'm very short with them, right? And so it should be a 360 degree approach. When someone starts to understand trauma and what happens to other human beings, I would think that compassion would say, you know what, I'm not just gonna treat the clients, this way, I want to treat everybody in my life as if they've had this trauma history because we've all had bad things happen to us. But I need to be able to respect and honor everyone in my life, not just the people um, that I'm supposed to be working with or working for. Um, so that trauma-informed approach um, for me is 360 degrees so it, it not only it reaches to the people that i work with but my family and friends um and then also um the, the, the clients as well so um i guess um uh, hopefully that answers the question yeah yeah that's 
that's powerful. Because mm -hmm. uh, in holistic medicine and holistic nursing, it is we understand or we recognize that every physical ailment or physical complaint actually has an underlying emotional mm -hmm. trauma, mm -hmm. if I may say, but it could be little or it could be big, as you emphasize. And in, in a holistic medicine and healing ways, yes, whoever is giving this, doing such compassionate care and responsibility like you do, must also be aware to have that, as you call the 360 degrees of compassion, mm -hmm. or else, because that's the one that keeps, that fuels us to continue what we love to do in, mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in, in the service for others and for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now, but how, what do you say, how do you help someone who, they may have a difficulty of even recognizing or maybe denying that there is a trauma in their lives. That's mm -hmm. why some behaviors are a little bit questionable or challenging for them. Mm. So, you know, the best we can do with an individual who doesn't um, demonstrate insight into their own trauma history is to meet them where they are. I mean, of course, everybody says that, but for us, the way that we do it um, is that you build an honest rapport um, with people. Um, I think in, in this work, you know, all too often people who, um, your social workers, your psychologists, your psychiatrists, and even your nurses, right? There is this professional distance that they must have, right? Um, and then I believe that in this professional distance, um, that they that they keep between the client um, and the actual practitioner that, that that's inside of that professional distance that's where the magic happens and so what I mean when I say that so in my work you know so we have a guy who isn't very isn't being very very responsive and it's not acknowledging the fact that you know he's had this really you know terrible um, trauma history that's affecting his relationships. The best thing that you can do with a person um, who, who doesn't demonstrate that insight is to build trust, right? And what I mean when I say that is like you build trust by when you meet with them, you meet with them without, without, without pen, without paper, and you just sit and you have an honest conversation with them. And a lot of times, um, not from that person is sitting in front of you, what I found that works with me in my work is that if you sit next to the person. So again, we're talking about a person who doesn't recognize their trauma history, um, but we want to be able to kind of model and demonstrate compassionate behavior. So now I'm going to sit next to you. I don't have a paper. I don't have a pen. I'm not going to take your intake information. What I'm really interested in doing is building an authentic rapport with you your net we talk about your name and then a lot of times when i talk about that professional distance i say to my staff all of the time you have got to put skin in the game this person just sat with you for an hour telling you their deepest and darkest secrets and the only thing that you did was look up and write a note that is not something that we do um, at the father center what i always 
um, share with my staff um, is that you put some skin in the game, not sharing all of your deep and dark secrets, but if this person, this other human being has shared with you their entire trauma history, you have to give them something. Yes, you can share with them that you're a parent, right? You don't necessarily have to share the names of your children, but you can share some of the struggles that you may have as a parent. Stop hiding, and this is what I tell my staff, stop hiding behind that professional distance. You're not violating your oath of do no harm if you share the fact that you have struggles too. It humanizes the process. So whenever you have someone who is not willing to acknowledge their trauma history, you have to make them human. <laughs> you make them human by sitting next to them, not across from them. You make them human by talking to them about their thoughts and feelings without violating your oath and without, with, and without um, um, betraying their confidence. But there's a middle ground that you must have. And that middle ground just kind of starts with building trust, right? And so that's how I would work with someone who did not acknowledge their trauma history, is that I would make that person as human as possible. You know, I would talk to you, follow up with you, give you information, not require that you make any kind of appointments the first or two times that we meet, but again, treating you like a human being as opposed to a client and or a case number. Um, that's my personal philosophy. That's my professional philosophy. And, it's worked for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I call actively listening and being fully present. Yes, yes. And that brings me to my history in the Philippines as a community-based health nurse before mm -hmm. I came to United States. And the practice is that if you want to truly make a difference, like with our community clients mm -hmm. and we usually go to the to the countrysides or we can be in also in the urban areas but if we want to be present and really listen if they're doing laundry we have to be where they're doing laundry mm. if they're cooking they, we have to be where they're doing their cooking mm -hmm. and if they are taking care of the children, breastfeeding. We have to be there next to them. Mm -hmm. So I always remember that. And, I, then, and I, that's when you said, meet them where they're at. So basically, physically meeting them also yes. where they're at. Mm -hmm. And then physically, mentally, emotionally. Uh, so and that, that's really like a work from the heart. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what, and that's where, you know, that's where most of my uh, work and my thoughts and the research and the approach um, that I take is all from the heart. And I usually, I usually preface a lot of things, especially when I'm in my staff meetings, and I say, you know, this guys, it's going to sound corny, but I believe it's love, you know. And I remember we talked about this a little bit, um, Grace, and it's love, you know. Um, and if we kind of start off with that very, very powerful emotion, I mean it kind of leads to all, it, it leads to a bunch of different, very positive things when it's properly applied, you know, love, you know, and I know, I know my staff, sometimes they get so sick and tired of hearing me saying that, but I'm like, I'm, it's, it's, it's who I am. And I think it's one of the guiding principles on um, that has made me, I'm um, successful. Um, and it has made me, um, 
I think I think definitely think that I'm a good dad, and I think that you know, with me kind of sharing that kind of uh, that love and that consistency with my parents, I mean, with my children, that it it returns, it returns. If you pour into them, and they give it right back to you, especially if it's authentic and it's pure. Dr. David Hawkins, he passed away already, but he became so popular because he was the pioneer of the, one of the biggest consciousness study. And mm -hmm. what he became so popular is the, his approach of calibrating values or emotions or behaviors. And mm -hmm. in his his most famous work is power versus force. And wow. he calibrated 500 really, it was like one of the highest calibrated value. Wow. And yeah, so I'm sure those who know about him and even those who don't know, love is love. The, you know, sometimes, yes. and it's, it's not, it's, we don't even have to define it because it is just, just it's more than a feeling it's mm -hmm. more than a practice. It encompasses everything. And yes. What one the two, couple of days ago, I had uh, my guest, and she's an elder. And mm -hmm. as she said, lately, Grace, all I could think of is just be love. Mm -hmm. he stopped trying to be to love someone to do it, and they just said, just be love. Just be right. love. Yes. Yeah. What's your biggest challenge in your life right now? Yeah. Wow. So my biggest uh, challenge would be... Hmm. Or anything that keeps you up at night. Ah. Or let's, if we, we want to get deeper and if that's okay with you, because we're trying to be vulnerable because mm -hmm. everyone has that vulnerable. So what is your biggest deepest pain oh wow so my biggest and deepest pain is so my my oldest son right um his name is Afari. um he is an engineer um in the air force um he uh he's in the philippines now yeah um he was in um he was in manila then he was in he's in palau right now um, he runs a camp in Palau, and he's helping the Filipino government um, construct um, hospitals and birthing centers, right? And uh, the camp that he runs, he's the commanding officer there. And, uh, you know, again, I can go on and on and on about my first son, Afari, right, um, who hasn't talked to me in two years, right? And, you know, I talk to, you know, obviously I have great relationships with, you know, my other son, Noah. I have two daughters, Summer and Amara, right? And we all sit around and I talk, I'm like, what's wrong with Afari, right? And, I've, you know, it causes me a lot of pain um, on a daily basis because I have four children and I, I enjoy really good relationships with all of them except Afari. And I always hear... Um, like whispers from his mother, like, oh, he's mad at you. But I'm like, he's mad at me for what? Like he's a he's an engineer in the Air Force. And who how do you think he how do you who supported him while he was in college, while he was in military school? And 
you know, who, who did all of that? How did he end up being angry at me? Why is it that he can talk to his mom and, and he can call her and, and, and talk with her and, and share, you know, stories with her, but he can't do the same with me? And then why isn't the mom, why isn't she telling him to call me, right? And so one of the things that, although that's my greatest pain, what I found um, in that was that Alfari with my youngest daughter, um, Amara, um, she's nine years old. Afari is sweet, he's loving, he's caring, he's responsive, he's attentive. He's sending her a brand new iPad, right? And I said to myself, well, Carter, he doesn't talk to you, but where do you think that he gets his nurturing spirit from? And although Afari is my greatest pain right now, it also gave me a very deep sense of joy because of the way that he treats his brothers and what well, his little, his youngest sister, he treats her like gold. And I feel like he had to learn that from somewhere. He had to get that nurturing spirit from somewhere. So although he causes me my greatest pain, I was still able to find some joy in the way that he interacts and loves his sister. And I said to myself, he had to learn that from me and his mom, because I don't ever want to take anything away from his mother, because we don't do this alone. Um, but I'm sure that part of that came from me and that part of that came from my love and my nurturing to him as a child, you know? So although he is being a little antisocial right now and he doesn't want to talk to me because he's angry about, I don't even know what, um, but I was still able to find, you know, although he's my, in my greatest pain, I was still able to find something positive in it. So it kind of prevented me from really having my, uh, really having my thoughts and my feelings actually turn bitter towards my son, right? Because I didn't want it to be like, all right, then we'll F you, right? You know, you little motherfucker, like, I, I don't even understand why you're mad at me right now of which that can easily turn into that. But I didn't want it to turn into that. And so I needed to look, I needed to look a little deep, deeper. And once I looked a little deeper, I said, wow, Afari is an awesome big brother. And he had to get that somewhere. And he got it from me and his mom. So that's what makes me feel better, you know? But yes, that's my greatest pain as my oldest son, you know? Yes. Well, they said that nothing stays forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's it what may I've just heard. be a matter of time, maybe a short time, maybe a long time, and maybe for <laughs> not no, nothing right. is forever really. So well, I hope not. He'll I, be twenty five on Sunday. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday, Afari. Yeah. Happy birthday. It's uh, um relationships, life, there's still so much mystery in relationship and in mad, but it's nevertheless, it's still magical because yes. that, and as you're describing that uh, love is, is shows there, still shows there. So, and mm -hmm. you know, we, mo 
all parents, I believe, have certain issue, whether small or big, again, with, mm-hmm. with children, whether they have one child. I even told my sister, I think it's good to have more than one child. I said, no, you can't really say that because mm-hmm. she's got five, I have one, because, you know. It, it, it doesn't, it could be all five may, you may not be talking to. I says, right. oh, okay. thank you for reminding me that. So you just don't know. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, but I, in the Filipino culture, it, because those who are older, those who have gone through all the experience needs to be more patient because they're the, the, the children, our children, are still going through that stage. And like, we've right. been there, done that. So mm-hmm. here we are, and we continue. So it's, it's all good, I believe. Oh, absolutely. And all, one of the things also that I remember about you, and for your self-care, you tend, you had a lot of... Uh, enjoyment in camping in bike riding i yeah you know all just about nature mm-hmm. so talk to me about love of nature oh my gosh so so remember i'm asking this question because you know these are all like available for for dementia caregivers or whoever is a caregiver who might yeah. be looking for something to you know, as a stress relief or whatever that love of nature will do mm. the love of nature has it saved my life um it continues to hold me and it continues to um show me how wonderful um god in the universe is um when i go just even if i was to take a walk in the woods and it depends upon what type of woods right you have new growth um which are in most of the state parks but i've been to different parts of the country where they have um, what they call primordial forests or the first forest or forest that have trees that have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that when you are in the presence of nature, I believe that you are in the presence of God because everything that is there was made naturally and grows by the sun. I believe that plants um, and animals, and specifically plants in the trees are sentient beings um, who, who breathe, who give oxygen to this planet, who in turn gives life to us. So with um, being present in nature, even the air is different. Um, the air is, I would think it would, it would definitely be cleaner scientifically. It's cleaner because the trees filter out the carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Um, the smell of nature, the smell of rotting leaves um, is like perfume. It's like an aroma um, to me, to the smell of wet soil. Um, you know that the smell of wet, deep, dark earth, you know that things grow in that. Food grows in the deepest, darkest, um, blackest earth. Um, trees, trees breathe, right? And they give us oxygen. 
Um, wow. So my love of nature, I mean, obviously it extends to the love of trees and being in the presence, but then being able to move through those natural spaces um, is also something that's been very interesting to me. So I move through those natural spaces. I can walk through those natural spaces. I can ride my bicycle through those natural spaces. And one of the things that have that has really that I've started this year, like really in earnest, and that is really taking my canoe out on bodies of water, right? And so being um, connected to the water, being connected to rivers, streams, and creeks, it's opened up a whole different world for me. Um, I know that when you are present in nature, on a boat, in the middle of a lake, that that is the closest that you can get to heaven on earth for me. Um, it is the closest that you can get to total peace and total stillness. It's the closest that you can get to being around things that are pure and untampered with. Because you're talking about trees and flowers and the plants and the soil that gives rise to the trees. And um, so the love of nature is something that I've had, oh my gosh, ever since I was a child. I remember um, when my mother um, sent my sister and I down south to Alabama um, to visit with relatives down there with my sister's father's family. And, uh, you know, of course, we were playing around. But then who got lost in the pasture? I got lost in the pasture because I looked on the other side of the gate. But what did I see? I saw all these rolling hills. I saw little patches of trees. And my, I guess I was seven at the time, I said to myself, I want to go out there. I want to explore. So it has always called to me. Um, it, I've just always been very, um, very drawn to it because I know that in those spaces um, that I have gotten my most, my, my, I've been inspired the most. I have a very, I have a favorite tree that I sit under at Princeton Battlefield Park, right? Um, it's not on the park where the, where, the, where the columns are, but it's on the other side, and it's three trees there. And again, I've written speeches there. I've uh, written letters there. I've read wonderful stories there, just on a blanket under a tree, and it has been the most positive um, and calming and relaxing things that I've done as far as my self-care and um, really connecting and staying connected with nature. Um, Again, but the, but, but the thing that I'm most excited about this year is being able to, is connecting in the water, right? Um, I have a, you know, I purchased the canoe not too long ago and just being able to go out, being able to connect with nature um, in that way, reading her currents, reading how the, how the rivers move, the tide, all of that, I think being in tune with nature um, helps, you, helps us to become in tune with our, um, with our hidden um, selves. And our hidden selves wants to be outside. It wants to soak up the vitamin D from the sunlight. It wants to be amongst the trees. I want to feel the earth underneath my feet. And even when I lay down in my blanket, you know, just to kind of feel the earth under you. Um, I could go on and on and on about um, just being in nature and about how, uh, how much it has changed me and how much it is 
kept me together, has kept my sanity together um, since I was a, a young man. And so um, I can't say enough about how even taking a walk amongst the trees or even just walking outside, even if you live in an urban environment, there's still the wind, there's still the sun, there's still the rain, you know? Bob Marley had a really good um, statement about nature. And he says, other people, some people feel the way rain, other people just get wet, right? I'm one of those people, I feel the rain. I don't get wet, so. Let's feel the rain. Let's be a part of nature, you know? And uh, so with that nature, that's so important because we're part of nature. What, what would be our best advice in this pandemic time? Because that was one of my, my feeling. The minute we had a quarantine, okay, maybe for a week I was fine with it. But after that, I, I feel like I was being choked. Yes. Yes. Whew. Wow. So and what is until the... now, I, that's why we, I created a podcast because I oh. need to have to find a way where my, my words are raised, my spirit can reach other spirits of like-minded people. And mm -hmm. yes, definitely be out there. Mm -hmm. We're meant to be out there. I yes. still remember when you used to camp on the on in winter time, and you told me that you'll ask your friend to drop you off in the middle of one of those uh, places yeah, in Princeton. on Princeton Pike. On Princeton Pike, exactly. Yeah. And then your friend picks you up the following day. So yes. How, yeah. how what, do, what, what are we gonna do, or what's the best thing to keep ourselves physically healthy, mentally and spiritually healthy during this pandemic time? And in addition, so you can go on, mm -hmm. off, whatever, however you want to respond to my, then all this race thing happens. Mm -hmm. So the best thing, and this is very simple, and I'm going to say the best thing that we can do um, through this pandemic is move, right? And so movement is key, right? And so... Sometimes people take for granted, um, you know, sometimes, you know, when people start to think, oh, I need to work out, I need to do this, I need to do that. But like, say, for example, the simple act of cleaning your home, sweeping the floor, mopping the floor, and maintaining the cleanliness of your home, that you can treat that as a workout. You can also treat that as movement through space, right? So I'm real big on movement, right? And so even... You know, it can be just as simple as taking a walk and drinking more water, Grace, right? And so that is one of the things that I say to all of the guys that kind of come into the Father Center and they're looking for um, advice and they're looking for um, direction. Um, and especially during this, you know, during the pandemic, during the quarantine, that movement, just move your body, clean your home drink water and walk, right? And so if I can just boil it down to just that, um, if that would be the best advice that I can give to someone is that, you know, maintain um, the cleanliness of your home and treat it like a workout as you're sweeping, as you're mopping, as you're dusting and doing whatever it is that you choose to do to clean your environment, that that's just as long as you're moving and drinking water. That's it, you know? 
I think, and that would be an excellent start. How about for the caregivers, especially for dementia, because you oh. also have experience, you also have a work experience that you worked in some group homes, right? Yes, I did. Yes. So you know what I'm talking about when now there is no daycare centers and they're stuck in their homes. Right. Uh, luckily, most of them are living with families. But Good. The caregivers, they're stuck, they're stuck with them. And mm -hmm. it's like, uh, I know they feel like they always ask me, when are you going to open? And, you know, so what, what's your, what can you suggest to them a good habit that they can do first thing in the morning or in the evening? Right. And so with, if we're dealing with um, people who are living with dementia, um, that I would, I wouldn't have a ritual, right? Um, and I would have, and my ritual um, specifically working with people with developmental disabilities or dementia, um, that ritual would have to involve something that involves touching, Grace, right? And feeling, right? Because the one thing that, uh, that I can say about people living with disabilities or a person um, that, is, um, that is, you know, living with dementia is that the, the mind is, that's the thing that goes, right? Their memories, it's almost like a sieve, like you can't hold any memories in, in there. And my thoughts are all over the place, but your heart is still there. If you create memories of the heart, right? If you create, every time that you see this person that you're charged with taking care of, if there was a hug, if that's appropriate, if even if there was a soft touch on the face and you make sure that your hands are warm, and you touch that person either, I mean, if, if even not on their face, on their shoulder, or you touch their hands, you make sure that their hands are warm, you are creating a memory of their heart, right? And the person, they may forget your name, they may forget your face, but they're not going to forget how you made them feel, right? They're not going to forget how you made them feel. So if your hands are warm, your warm touch, your eyes, your countenance, your gaze, how you look at them matters. If you are a caregiver and you are disgusted and you, you don't like the smells, you don't like the, the, the condition of the house, you, don't, you may not like that person anymore, best believe they feel that and they know that, right? And so the one thing that you, the, the one thing that you can do, the one, hopefully that's not the situation, but creating memories of the heart is the best thing that you can do. And the rituals are warm hands, warm touch, somewhere appropriate, right? And create something that makes them feel good. You look at them and you smile. You may not think that they understand the smile that comes across your face because of end-stage dementia or severe developmental disability, they feel it. I know they feel it. So if you, you smile, you create these warm hands and you create these rituals, um, that that can hopefully help to alleviate some of the, the pain, the boredom, um, and hopefully to kind of help improve the quality of life of, of the people that we're supposed to be taking care of. And especially, like again, if a person is living with dementia or a developmental disability, creating a memory of the heart 
making them feel well by your presence, your touch, and the way that you look is the most important thing. I'm in total agreement with you. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, being a nurse and being on the Filipino healer practice that I do the massage, that's, and we growing up with, with the indigenous healer, the, the indigenous massage from the Philippines, that touch is so important. It's just that in this quarantine pandemic time, when there's so much fear in, in the air of, of media and instructions and conflicting, it's just, you know, like people are scared to touch or there's no more opportunity to touch, maybe just at home, but mm -hmm. now because there's no more center. And I remember at the daycare center before where the, the, my, my clients come, we hug them a lot. And we yes. always say that could be their best hug. There could be their only hug for yes. the day. Yes, yes. So we keep that in mind. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that at some point things will change and we could have that up, up safe place for the elders again to have that. Okay. Yes. That, that, that hug, that smile, and yeah, making them feel, touching their face. Mm -hmm. Just a beautiful thing. <laughs> And that's what you, you did. thank you, great advice. And let's see, what's your ritual for yourself in the morning and in the evening? So the, in the morning, um, what I do is I like to what I call, I call set my intention for the day. Um, and so it is literally me sitting with my feet flat on the floor in a relaxed um, position and being very present and thinking about what my day looks like, um, the things that I intend to do for the day, and then almost programming my mind to say, this is going to be a good day, right? So that would be my ritual in the morning is setting my intent, in, intention for the day. What I, excuse me, what I do in the evening is, um, and it's just a simple, um, if, I, if I didn't do any strenuous physical activity, I take a shower, right? Um, but if it was just a regular day and I'm just going to go to sleep after my day, I always wash my face and hands. Um, but I do it very present. I, like I'm mindful, wash my face and hands, right? So instead of, right, um, I'm there, I feel the soap. Right? I feel the soap on my hands. I wash the back of it. I feel the warmth of the water wash over my fingers and my hands, right? I rinse that off and then I feel the water go onto my face. And so that um, being present while I'm washing my face and hands helps me calm and almost filter out some of the junk um, that kind of happened during the day. Um, and then I can leave it down the drain after I'm finished, you know? So it is setting my intention in the morning and mindful face and hand washing in the evening. Yeah. This is fantastic. I like, you know, I enjoyed our time and yes. I get, we can go on and on. <laughs> we'll set it for another time. Yeah. Uh, but just briefly, where do you see yourself in five years? Wow. 
where do I, so professionally, um, I see myself continuing in the work that I've done, but I want to be able to expand my work um, to, so I work for this organization called the Father Center. I would like to see the Father Center replicated in every state or in every urban center where there is a large concentration of people. So in basically in every, major, in every major city, I would love to see something or some sort of version of the Father Center to kind of help men and the young men prepare to be better dads. And because the idea is that if we prepare to be better dads, we help, we have better children and we have better people, you know? And so we'd be a better place to live. Um, personally, um, so I would have liked to have completed a triathlon. Um, that is, you know, I want to swim two miles, I want to run a full marathon, and I want to bike a hundred miles. So that is um, a personal goal um, for me. Um, and as well as, I think I also want to ride a hundred miles on my bike, you know? So, so a hundred miles on my bike, complete a triathlon, and maybe replicate um, what I'm doing here in New Jersey under the Father Center across the state, across the country, so that's that. So. I'm sure you'll get to your goal. And yes, I hope so, I hope so. Where can, where can they find your information? And maybe okay. move, move a little bit also so they could see the Father yes. Center. Yeah, that's yes. it, the, fa the Father Center of New Jersey. Right, that's and that's the website, and that's the website. You know, so they can go directly there and find out about all of the wonderful things that my organization does. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of every episode, I, I share a quantum affirmation and I encourage my listeners, my audience, that they can have that quantum cards, either they can purchase a quantum cards or they can make their cards of affirmation. And what I do is I shuffle that card with intention in the morning. And like today, I said, what is it that I want to share with Musai and then the audience for today? Mm -hmm. And then I say that three times in the morning, three times in the at noon, and three times in the evening. And for me, having this practice helps me a lot as well. It kind of reminds me, my focus me, and well, you know, so that if there are challenges come, I can remember that, okay, I just said that. So today, this is what I got. Mm -hmm. Unique in the universe. There is no one else like me. I appreciate my unique combination of skills, talents, and personality that have been given to me. I make a profound difference in the world. I celebrate my uniqueness. There is no one else like me. I appreciate my unique combination of skills, talents, and personality that have been given to me. I make a profound difference in the world. I celebrate my uniqueness. There is no one else like me. I appreciate my unique combination of skills, talents, and personality that have been given to me. I make a profound difference in the world. I celebrate my uniqueness. Yes. So thank you. Thank you, Musai. Thank you, Carter Patterson. 
He's our guest today, and thank you for the audience. And I say in my language, Mabalos, that thank you. And thank then you. I want to say, don't let anything or anyone take the joy out of your life. And awesome. this, <laughs> this is Quantum Nurse, and I am Grace Asagra. Feel free, I'm going to put all Amosai's information in the link and where he, you can get in touch with him. We have a book a complimentary coaching call that might lead to a question for Musai. So feel free to, for the audience to click that link. Okay. So mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you, Grace. Thank you.